Hey, it's Darcy McConvey, and this is the Venture and Gains podcast. The purpose of the show is to connect people to other great people, ideas, and opportunities. Everyone has less than a handful of people in their network, where it seems like there's something different about them. Everything they touch seems to turn to gold. These are the podcast guests. We catch them at various stages of their career, learn from how they think, so we can connect the dots and apply it. The brain science tells us that the average professional has an eight-second attention span. We're more distracted, more distant, and more distressed than ever before. And guess what? It's harder for distressed people to listen and learn. How we communicate is more important than ever. But we often communicate to impress rather than inform. As professionals, we should be designing for attention, our scarcest resource. Deborah Jasper breaks down critical today skills that we could all use. Write for action, redesign how we are presenting, SOS emails, and of course, the title slide, the LinkedIn profile, and Google search result, where she takes great positioning on how you should appear, not what you do and hey, look at me, but what you love about what you do for your clients. Deborah cuts through the fluff, a storytelling master, and a can't miss interview. Catch her at MindsetDigital.com. And now, Deborah Jasper. So welcome back to season two of the Venturing Gains podcast. Been waiting for this episode for, for quite a while with Deborah Jasper, Mindset Digital founder and CEO. I think you know much of what Deborah and I will get into today is uh, very relevant to the times that we're in. So Deborah, welcome. Great to have you. Thanks, Darcy. It's great to be here. I'm excited. <laughs> I don't know if my voice sounds like it, but I, but I am excited. <laughs> so what makes it so hard for people to write in simple, visual, and in a non-cluttered way? Like, right. why are we so compelled to jam more info on a page? <laughs> I wish I knew. Yeah. I love, of course, everyone talks about the quote. If I could, if I, I'm sorry, I wrote you this long letter. If I had more time, I'd write you a shorter one. Yeah. I think sometimes true. we're caught up in this curse. I, I call it the curse of expertise, which is when we're writing to impress or communicating to impress rather than communicate to inform. And I think some of us think when we elevate our language, that we're impressing people when actually people just aren't tuning into jargon. They're not tuning into long blocks of text. And they're definitely not tuning into meandering, whether you're meandering in your email or whether it's a meandering Zoom call. We're just, we're not tuning into that stuff anymore. We don't, we have too much coming at us every day. Yeah, there is a ton. Like I, I sometimes feel like I'm on uh, brain overload and it's a small brain to start with. So then when you get the overload, it, it happens that much quicker with just the amount of emails and the things to do versus like the ability to think in a way. And so I love what, what you're doing, you know, maybe give a little bit of your background around sort of micro storytelling and, and, and then this, the virtual sure. is a new reality and kind of your business a little bit in, in more detail. Yeah. And let me just first say, because I want to respond to what you're saying, but I do think all of us are feeling incredibly, we're just fatigued, right? We've all mm. been through the last year is so much more than any of us ever thought we would live through. The, so the, the pandemic, and then we were already in triage even before that happened. So even before the last year, the average professional had an eight second attention span. And it's not that we wouldn't tune in longer. It's just a, that we're making a snap judgment about, is this podcast going to be worth my time? Is this mm -hmm. you know email worth my time? We're just because because we're in triage. And so now the brain science is just fascinating it, because our clients are not only only more distant, they're more distressed. So now they're distracted, distant, and distressed. And we're trying to break through the noise. And the brain science shows when you're working with very distressed clients, it's harder for them to listen. It's harder for them to learn. And it's harder for them to remember what you told them. Mm -hmm. So that means that how we communicate now matters more than ever. And yes, my background is actually in educational policy and leadership. But I wrote my dissertation on the art of powerful micro storytelling. Well, right. my storytelling in, in Appalachia. But then I looked at how people told micro stories. 
and I launched on that note, what is a mic? Like what's yeah, classified as a micro a story? story? Yeah. Well, let me say I launched the first social media fellowship for journalists actually in the world when I was at Ohio state and we were working with CNN and 60 minutes and Chicago tribune and Los Angeles times. And I got into this because I started looking at Twitter and I was teaching, I taught some of the first graduate courses in the country on Twitter and Facebook posts and all of that. And you just saw how much we were tuning into short text, you know, whether it was a tweet or a post and it was changing the way we communicate. Mm. And that was definitely influencing how I started thinking about stories. So micro storytelling is basically, it's just short stories that are designed for uh, short attention spans. And I call it designed for attention and attention is our scarcest resource. That's for sure. So what are the skills that sort of you would be teaching to help, you know, eliminate the distance and the distress and sort of to get people back on track? Sure. And so for your audience today, Darcy, and you and I have talked about this, I think that there are three critical, I mean, these are essential skills and I don't like to talk about them in big lofty terms because I think a lot of us are just saying, what do I need to do today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what can I do at the end of this podcast? And the three essential skills are one, you have to have a fully optimized online presence, especially on LinkedIn. So if I go to your LinkedIn profile or if I go to your website, again, I'm making a quick decision about two things. Do I like you and do I want to do business with you? So you have to tell the powerful story of you online because mm-hmm. increasingly I, I'm not running into you anymore out there. I'm not having coffee with you right now. So I'm judging you. I'm looking you up online. I'm judging you. This And we can talk more about that. The second thing is we have to write for action. So we at Mindset Digital teach a whole process called SOS. It's a methodology around everything that goes out the door has to be short, organized, and skimmable mm-hmm. because we are in triage. And then we're making a snap decision about whether to even open your email. And then the third thing is, is we have to redesign how we're presenting, especially for a small screen. So I'm writing a book right now called Small Screen, Big Impact. It'll be coming out at the end of the year. And it's all about designing for attention, whether you're in a Zoom call or you're writing an email or you're creating your online presence. It's uh, all... all brilliant things. And so obviously, like we said earlier, to open it up, super relevant. You know, I'm very fascinated as of late, particularly around the power of LinkedIn. I just think it's, you know, maybe I'm late to the game. I don't know, but, you know, I've been on LinkedIn for a while, but I think it's such a powerful tool, just how you can connect with people and, you know, email to your point is very redundant and LinkedIn gives you the ability to sort of do that in a light touch way. And I love the perspective that you bring around. Most people use LinkedIn as almost like a resume, mm-hmm. but yours, you know, one of the things that I, I picked up from you and I think is brilliant is this idea of, you know, if they're looking at Darcy's LinkedIn profile, my LinkedIn profile, what can Darcy do for me? Not what does Darcy do for people? Like, it's not about Darcy. It's about how I can help yeah. the person looking. I think that's a brilliant perspective. And, you know, it's funny. So a little more about my background is in the old days, I used to cover, I was a journalist and I covered presidential campaigns. I'm really happy. I don't do that now. <laughs> I say that all the time. I wonder why. Yeah. I wonder why I'm not happy. You know, I don't want to be on the road doing that. But when I was covering presidential campaigns and covering gubernatorial races and things like that, I realized when I came to LinkedIn, I went, oh, this should be a mini magazine bio, hmm. right? This is, this is not about just about your credibility. It's about your relatability, And so if you're, if I encourage anyone listening to this podcast, just go look at your LinkedIn profile and read the first six words in your about section. If you don't have an about section, that's one right there. One thing you want to fix because it's the most valuable real estate on your profile. But if the first six words start with something like Darcy has been in business for 20 years, right? Or Deborah is a dynamic leader, (laughs) then you're not building trust. It should absolutely start not with what you do and not even with what you love about what you do, but what you love about what you do for your clients. That's what that section should be. And that is just a different way of thinking about it. Because we know we wouldn't walk up to a client and say, Deborah is a dynamic leader. We don't talk that way. Mm -hmm. So we have to stop building those formal barriers to relationship building with the way we present ourselves online. 
So the key is what you love about what you do for your clients. Right. What I love about Norm Trainer too, can I just say with sure. the Covenant Group and you know Norm, he yeah. he talked when I was talking when we did his LinkedIn profile makeover, which everyone should just go look up Norm Trainer, but because you'll we did his before and after profile makeover. And what I loved about it is he said, Oh, this is like you know, the classic story of, of narcissist. No one wants to know how great you are. They want to know how great you're going to make them. Yeah. And I thought that was just brilliantly phrased. That's a story he tells well. Like he's... Uh, he does. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. He's, he definitely has a memory on him for sure. About yeah. Old stories. So one of the things you do is just help like, you know, amongst others is, is help yeah. clients think through these things. Because I think one of the struggles you know, maybe you find, or, or people find me, I have probably historically and still do, is just like, it's more not what you do, like you said, but like, who am I and what is my right. essence and how do I bring that out? So I think the framing of what you love about what you do for your clients is great, but I think some people might not have that. Right. And here's what I will say. It is hard to tell your own story. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was a, for a long time, I was an award-winning writer, but when I sat down to tell my own story, I, a friend of mine, who's a chief marketing officer called and said, Deborah, I hope you don't mind, but I rewrote it a little bit <laughs> because I can tell your story really well. Telling your own story is always hard and people underestimate estimate how much time and effort it takes. So we've done more than a thousand executive makeovers. We do LinkedIn makeovers for people every day. And we interview, I have a great writer on my team who's a LinkedIn specialist. And then, a, and, and the guy who edits these is a, has a PhD in rhetoric. So there's a lot of kind of brain power that goes to this, but we spent about 30 hours on these. And when you do it really well, you have a, a great visual background, the right photo, you have good uh, visuals in your feature section, you have a, a compelling about section, you have the right keywords. People always say, oh, I'll get to that. But but whoever spends time doing it, when in reality, more often more people go to your LinkedIn profile than ever look at your website. So it's amazing right. to me how much money people invest in a website. And then they got on LinkedIn years ago and never, never went back. You know, I think speaking of Norm, like one of the things that he sort of is, is one of his core things is there's the three ways people triangulate, right? They mm-hmm. Google you, they word of mouth, and then the initial impression and now when there's no initial impression, it's almost as if there's two, there's Google and word of mouth, right? So it needs to be mm-hmm. that much more clear about, you know, who you are and what you do. So I think yes. it's super relevant. And I think it's the first thing that we're, ju- so we're getting judged every day. I, I yeah. laugh sometimes because I'll, sometimes when I'm teaching, I teach a design for attention masterclass on how to design presentations mm-hmm. and you'll put up the initial slide and you can just ask people, Sometimes I'll put up a bad one. I used to do this when I did it live and say, vote up, vote down. Is this just based on this slide? Is this going to be a good presentation? People are judging you on your title slide. Sure. So, you know, we're just being judged on so many things. So one of them, of course, is they look you up online. And then let's say that you earn the meeting. And I'm with you, Darcy. I think that we've been teaching LinkedIn for a decade now with one client, we rolled out 24,000 seats of LinkedIn training. So I feel like we've done a lot of this and people miss the, once you get that fully optimized profile, the big opportunity is advanced search. I mean, I can do an advanced search and say, I want to know every CEO at this corporation in my zip code. I Mm want to know every, you know, attorney that's connected to my friend, Mike. I mean, there's so much that you can do around advanced search and then around, Hey, Mike, I see, you know, four people that I really want to know. It's so much easier to ask people to do an introduction if you're doing it by name. Right. So posting is not prospecting. (laughs) Posting alone does not drive business, but when you use LinkedIn, like a seriously powerful database, you can get tremendous results. Again, we're just on the early sort of phase of that, but I'm seeing that and even some of the webinar functionality and stuff they have now. What about writing? So I've read, uh, I think it's Chris Voss, the, you know, from Negotiator, who's been on a book tour for quite a while is he actually says to have a question in an email. Are you no longer interested in this product? Are you no longer interested in this service? So 
everyone wants to know what the Jedi email is to send to get replies because we send so many and get so many. Mm-hmm. So how do you help with that? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, so one thing I, I want to say one more thing about LinkedIn before we switch topics. And that sure. is, I mean, frankly, our, we took on private equity, serious private equity to invest in trying to help people get to habit formation on LinkedIn to actually get to those results. So on average, we have this in-depth LinkedIn program. I think of it as kind of the personal trainer because <laughs> you have to have real goals, right? Mm-hmm. And and so everybody should be thinking about, okay, yes, a five-star profile, check. Do I have more than at least 500 connections? Check. There's a whole sort of series of things that you want to accomplish. But if you do all the right things, on average, people who who do this training get seven times more meetings through LinkedIn on average. So it does, there is a huge payoff if people actually know what they're doing. Whether you're working with us or somebody else, what I would say to someone is it's a sophisticated network. And if you're just, if you feel like you've gotten on and it's been a waste of time, get someone who does have expertise in it to help you because the payoff is real. So now on the SOS side or email, you're so right. Here's a, here's a quick, tip that we talk to people about all the time, which is kind of mind blowing for them. But there's only one grade level that has a higher than 50% open rate, a LinkedIn, you know, one grade level and email campaign written at what grade level. So I'll quiz you and I haven't asked you this. So Darcy, do you think it's third grade, eighth grade or 12th grade? Well, seeing the theme is simple and clear. I'm guessing third grade. (laughs) I should have said like kindergarten or third grade. Yeah, I would have faked the right. Yeah. But it is, it's third grade. Oh, and people God. will just roll their eyes and say, so Deborah, are you saying you have to dumb it down? And I say, no, but you do have to break it down. So if you send me a lot of jargon and a lot of meandering and a lot of just overwritten emails, you end up in my to-do Saturday pile, which of course eventually becomes my to-do never pile. Right. So part of the formula is definitely up high, what is in it for me. In email, I constantly, before I hit send, I'm looking at those first six words. So that alone, the first six words matter the most. If you're spending those first six words saying, my name is Deborah, then you're making a big email mistake because if I don't know you, I'm already deleting. So that alone can make a big impact. Of course, short, organized, skimmable can make a big impact. What's an example of the first six words that would just be perfect? It's all about what's in it for them. You know, so you, whatever your topic is, you have to start with, with what's in it for you. I sometimes show Carvana, you know, the car, the, uh, where you can buy a car online. Have you heard of? Yeah, I do. I do know it. Yeah. I use them as a case study sometimes because they, a friend of mine bought a car from them and she was showing me their emails and uh, they use the word you a lot. They are talking to you and it is definitely informal and it feels authentic, but there's a little bit of humor in it. So their whole email campaign was unbelievably smart. It was just so well done. She bought a car and then they sent her a a dance. Her, your car is dancing while waiting for you. And they literally (laughs) had this dancing car. So it was clever. And I know people are going, what does that have to do with financial services? But here's what Mm -hmm. I think. Your emails have to be more informal, more engaging, and clear. Clear writing reflects clear thinking. I give people the three what test. Maybe this helps. Here's the three questions. You have to be able to answer before you hit send. What? What is this email about? And can I tell you what it's about in a sentence? So what? Why does your client actually care? And now what? What are you actually asking the client to do next? And you would be surprised. It sounds so simple. But when you start asking yourself those questions before you hit send, you'll start to dramatically change the emails you're sending out. Those are great. I love having that, you know, template to build off of. Mm -hmm. I use it with everything. I do it with my presentations. What's this presentation about? So what? Why does my client care about this? And it seems so simple, right? But so often when I coach, I do a lot of presentation coaching and and I'll say, why does the client care? And the answer they give me, then I go to their presentation and it's 20 slides in, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because you need to get out that this is me, this is us, this is what mm-hmm. we've done. Like, you got to know, trust me, you got to know. Right. Or else you, you won't stay with me. And then, nope, they're yeah. gone. 
And the single big mistake is too often people think they've got to start by introducing themselves right? and saying, let me tell you all, you know, I could have started by saying today, my, you know, my PhD is in education and I wrote my dissertation on the, you know, and I, instead it's so much better. People know that because I did talk about it, but I tried to work, you just try to work it in as you go versus mm-hmm. let me do a long introduction at the beginning that's going to put people to sleep. Yeah. I love it. Like I love, it's like um, budgeting, I guess, and cost. I say you kind of always have to stay on top of it. Emails are the same. You know, you kind of always have to stay, stay on top of it and cut out the fluff. Here's the thing that I think people can just skip now. This is the bad business school advice. You know, I taught for seven years in the John Glenn School at Ohio State and uh, graduate courses on public policy and how to communicate effectively and then I also did some teaching in, in a business school at Ohio State, in the business school at Ohio State a little bit. And the old adage, tell me what you're going to tell me and then tell me and then tell me what you told me. Mm-mm. We don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if your stuff is repetitive and I feel like, oh, I've heard this already and you're repeating yourself, I'm going to go to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got to reframe everything around short attention spans and simplifying because simple is hard. And if I'm asking you to puzzle through, you're probably just not going to. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. How about questions in an email? Yeah, I mean, I use questions for sure, but it it just has to feel authentic. I, I always think questions like, if I could show you today how much this would be valuable to you, would you be interested? I That stuff makes me cringe, I have to say. But it may be generational too, or it may mm-hmm. be cultural for sure. I'm sure different, it depends on where you are and the kind of client that you're working with. But I think a lot of us, and especially do we feel like in the last year, we're just more informal. Yeah. And I do, I think casual does not mean careless, but it absolutely means a lot friendlier and a lot more informal and a lot less staged. Yeah. I just think anytime someone says you should always put something in an email or you should always say this, I'm just a little suspicious, maybe. We're probably a little more casual because we're working at home in our sweatpants. Yeah. We were on a Zoom call the other day and someone showed up kind of with a suit jacket on and everybody was like, we know you're in your house, you know? Yeah. And it true. just seemed a little incongruous. Going the other way. You know? Yeah. Like, don't kid yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I guess the reason I was asking about questions is, is sometimes personally, like I'll end with the question if I'm trying to get engagement. Otherwise Mm -hmm. I send an email and you don't get engagement. So I don't know if that's a right or wrong way to do it, but. So it depends on what what do you try? You know, I think of emails in buckets. Some emails are just trying to get a meeting. Some emails are trying to get you to respond to something that they've sent you. Some emails are trying to get you to click on a link. So it just depends on, am I writing to you personally and just trying to get a meeting with you? Yeah. I have tips on that. But if I'm trying to get you to click on a link, then that's a different, you know, one clear call to action. One thing I will say is we, we're working with a client now, it's a big tech firm. And we were showing them that in their emails, typically they were doing two or three calls to action, which is, do you want to do this meeting and click on this link? And here's a newsletter. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the result, of course, is no one does any of it because right. there's there's just too much going on in one in one email. Single call to action, good mm-hmm. takeaway, right? And then I would love to understand your sort of client base, like like who and how do you work, and sort of what sure. are engagements like. I think design, you know, coming from maybe the seat I am in, and I think in technology, it's it's not the case. Like design is on the forefront; it has been for a long time. I think half the time tech firms raise a bunch of money is because they look so good, but, um, design is critical. And I think, you know, it's, it's an underutilized thing in business generally. And, and so when you think about design and, you know, small screen, big impact, like what are the things that you're focusing on? Right. I love this. This is my, I'm just so passionate about this topic right now. So, and I was on a call the other day with a, a CMO of a big Canadian financial firm. And he's, and I, I'm going to call him and say, can I just start quoting you? Because I love this quote. Can I quote you by name? Because he said, I feel like we're in the 1950s of, of virtual meetings. And, and in the next three years, it's going to change dramatically, right? I agree. I, I think we're going to all have avatar. You know, Facebook right now is working on avatars that can perfectly mimic our facial expressions, 
we're going to have virtual meetings, but we're going to feel like those meetings are, we're actually going to be in a meeting room with our avatars talking to each other. There's a lot of crazy stuff coming and that's just not counting holograms and, you know, augmented reality and all of that. So, uh, so I've been doing a lot of research on that and my mind is blown, let me say, but between now and then, if we want to just stand out, one of the big things that people can do, I call it rapid visual storytelling. And this goes back to most of what we take in, we take in through our eyes. I always use the example of if you watch a drug commercial, they always have happy people golfing while they're telling you about the brutal side effects. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. it's because we we're we're seeing more than we take in more information that we see rather than what we hear. So if you're doing a client presentation, when I do the I do a masterclass, the first one I talk about is narrative. You have to have a powerful opening and a powerful ending. And one and one quick tip for people today is I say never end on questions because there's just nothing worse in a meeting where you're like, okay, any questions, <laughs> and there yeah. aren't any. Or there's, because then you're kind of like, okay, well, thanks. Bye everyone. So on that, is it more important to take engagement throughout? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And I pause in different, I'll talk about, we have chapters, right? So you should have chapters. I'm going to give you three key points, just three. You're not allowed to give me more. It's what in 45 minute, a 45 minute webinar. Don't give me 10. I will let you give me three and a bonus, you know, some things like that. <laughs> But you're going to prime me up front that because good books have chapters, you know, mm -hmm. and studies show that we tune out at least 30 percent of the time. We can't help it. And when you say, OK, now we, the second key shift is this, then you can go, oh, OK, we're in the second shift. Oh, we're in we're heading into the home stretch. So you've got to design your presentation using narrative. That's a big part of designing for attention. And instead okay. of ending on questions, you'll say, I'm going to take questions and then I'm going to wrap up. So what questions do you have? or even prime me around, do you have any specific questions about X? So you will take questions at the end, but you're going to own the ending. So then you're going to leave me with what you most want me to remember. And it's just an important way of keeping control of the, of the narrative and making sure that you go off on something powerful or something funny. Sometimes I'll end on something, you know, that's just fun because people end laughing and then they're happy. I always end my in-person keynotes with with something funny. People love it when you make them laugh at the end. <laughs> it's kind of like experiential design, like how they historically and still do think about events. Mm -hmm. You know, start with the you know, starts got very important. The middle is important, but you know, you can expect maybe some ups and downs. And then the ending is very important. And people are going to remember the beginning in particular, the ending, right? And then small yes. things along the way. As long as it's not very bad in the middle, you, you people will ultimately end, remember the beginning and the end. At least that's yes. my, my understanding. No, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right, Darcy. And actually, I like that analogy and I haven't, I hadn't thought about it, but I, I do a lot of work with, uh, in, in hospitality and I should, I'm going to steal that analogy because they, I work with, a, you know, I've been, I've spoken twice at PCMA, which is a big event planning organization. And I should absolutely say it's, it's people invest heavily in their keynote opening keynote and their closing keynote. And there is a reason for that. Mm -hmm. And then I think the, the second component of this is rapid visual storytelling. And by that, I mean, in my keynotes, my on live on stage keynotes, I use 365 slides in an hour. <laughs> That's it, incredible. It, it well, our brain. Here, it goes back to the most brain people science. use thirty or forty or right. But I don't have much max. text, right. so I may have only one word per slide or four or five words a slide. Typically, I click twelve hundred times. I've been, you know, I've given keynotes. I've in more than a dozen countries, more than two hundred fifty thousand people, and I think that the reason that I've been able to do that, that kind of big keynote circuit, is because the stories are visual. And we, people love that. They, we don't watch, if you think about when you sit down to watch a small screen, if you sit down to watch TV or you watch a video on your laptop, no one puts up an image and then talks for five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So why we think we can get away with that in a presentation is kind of amazing to me. And the biggest shift, of course, is half the time people don't even have their cameras on. So you don't know if they're paying attention. And that means you, the, it's even more critical that you're designing to keep them engaged because it's a lot easier for people to start checking email if, if you're not. When you're talking about this, I, I get kind of, you know, someone talks about something you like and you get kind of like 
riled up or excited. Yeah, it's you know, exciting. Pretty fired up about it. I'm like, man, yeah. I gotta get, implement this ASAP. I don't use as many, so I've done. I don't know. This year, I've probably done. Well, in the in the last month, I've done 11 virtual talks, and it's been a, the other great thing about all the new virtual work is, you know, I just gave three talks in Switzerland and I never left my, yeah. <laughs> my house, you know, so there's a lot of kind of cool stuff going on there. But what's really fun about this is when you do visual storytelling and you, you create some micro stories visually and you have that, the strong ending and all of that, people are grateful and, and they're just thrilled that they didn't have to sit through a, another boring webinar. I think Zoom fatigue is real. Oh yeah, it is. I used to think right, it, that it was up to the person who showed up in an event to pay attention, understand, and remember because they showed up. No, it's that's that obligation is on those of us who are presenting. You know, people are giving us an hour of their day. That's priceless. And so it's up to us to design an experience that makes them uh, walk away with big takeaways and get excited about what you the information you shared. I love that. That's great. Sounds like a, a college coach like Nick Saban talking about football while you're talking about presenting. <laughs> well, I'm passionate about this too because who isn't sitting through painful? Here's why you get excited about it. You get excited about it because all of us are in pain about bad webinars and bad emails and just kind of the, the slog of the day. And if we want to stand out with clients and we start communicating with a lot of clarity and impact, the response is phenomenal. Yeah, for sure. So it's worth it. So who are your clients you most work with? By the way, on LinkedIn, I was just thinking about this this morning is this, I'm kind of veering off the path. When someone adds you and is like, oh, great to connect or however they go about it, and then mm-hmm. nail you with a three paragraph email. I'm like, right. re- like, really? You think I'm going to read that at, right, right now? It's um, yeah. mind boggling. But anyways, side note, total. No, total I'm side. totally with you. I'm taking screenshots right now because I'm doing a lot of LinkedIn training. And this week I have five screenshots of, of ways not to try to connect. <laughs> and and my, my favorite one is when people connect and say, I'm trying to expand my network. So I, well, good for you, but I don't, why, you know, what does that mean to me? Yeah, exactly. So, sure, yeah. I'll jump and I don't mean again. to be, Listen, I'm very empathetic. It is hard, right? And none of us get it right every time. But I, I think if you're just sending me a lot of generic stuff, it's just not going to work. Cold yeah. calling is this cold calling success right now is 0.3%. And what I say is you can't cold call on LinkedIn either. You have to do a little bit of work to get to know people. Yeah, that's a good point. Connect somehow. So who are the clients, I guess, that you work with most sure. in terms of industry? And yeah, like what's the sort of expectation for a client and and success and outcomes? And we work with what I, the thing I do love about this work is we have been working with clients of all sizes. So I was lucky enough about seven years ago to become the, the exclusive digital media training partner of Lemra. And they ended up marketing us to 1,200 insurance firms worldwide, which is incredible. I guess my humble brag is, and I got, I was their opening keynote speaker. I got to open for Colin Powell, which I, cool. I just like saying, yeah. uh, which is kind of cool. And so we ended up doing a ton of work in the insurance world. And, and then that got us into the financial services space. Nationwide, of course, is in our backyard in Columbus, Ohio. So we've done a lot of work with Nationwide and we did we worked with them last year on a cool cybersecurity project that just won the top compliance international training compliance award in the in in the world, I guess. So that was really cool. We have an Xbox, an award-winning Xbox game designer that was our chief creative officer for seven years and helped designed some incredibly compelling micro courses, you know, online courses that you could take. So the, we've been rolling out training at at big levels to like 33,000 seats or 58,000 seats of training. But we also do training with just a financial advisor who calls and says, Hey, Deborah, I'd really like to get a LinkedIn makeover. And I have a a team of writers and they, they call you and they, they write your makeover. So we can work with kind of a small business that has one or two people on their team. And we're working with fortune 100 insurance companies and, and uh, banks and uh, who else? Healthcare. I did, I just finished giving a talk at the internet healthcare conference with the, I co-spoke with the CMO of Ohio health. So it's been kind of a wide range of, 
of people. I was supposed to speak, I will say this, I was supposed to be the opening speaker for 10,000 risk managers at RIMS in May. And of course it got canceled. And I told my husband the other day, I don't think that we'll ever have 10,000 risk managers from 90 countries in a room again. No, So seriously. I probably won't get a chance to be the opening speaker at, at a 10,000 person RIMS conference. Yeah. They're the opposite of the people that are going to be driving the risk managers. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. That, yeah. I can see how like, especially financial advisors and I don't know, financial services, insurance, there's a lot of disruptive sort of FinTech and tech, but you know, for like traditional planners and advisors, it's a little bit like it was 30 years ago and something like this can be, you know, just these little steps could be so, so big for, for yeah. them. So I like, I, it's a smart, good place to play. Yeah. We worked with an advisor the other day who called us and he just said, my LinkedIn presence needs help. My presentation needs help. And my website needs help. And, you know, in a couple of weeks, we had a, a new presentation for him. We had, we totally rewrote his website and we did his LinkedIn makeover. And in his presentation, it was already, what he was saying was good. The content was good. The design wasn't. And it's so good now. And it, he's so excited. And that's, that kind of work is it's just fun. I love seeing before and afters. I guess I like that transformation yeah. moment when you go, oh, look, it looked like this. And now it looks like this. And, yeah. and people get excited when they when they go through the transformation. So I don't want to um, keep you too long, but I know that, you know, you can see obviously why people feel feel good when they've transformed and, and taken a step. I know that you, you've also won a ton of awards in one of the areas that you're very passionate about is helping companies recruit women, which I think is a great idea. I myself am making a harder push to get great people, women like yourself on the podcast. And, you know, I read something in, in, uh, I think McKinsey had published it, how women are going to, you know, control 50 plus percent of the net worth in the world by 2030. And right. just, there's a shift. So maybe talk a little bit about sort of what you do to help women and, and then also around some of the interesting facts that you've pulled out around language and use of language. Sure. It's definitely, I'm passionate about it. I'm also passionate about helping women become entrepreneurs. More female entrepreneurs are needed for sure. And you know, I was named one of the top female entrepreneurs by EY a couple of years ago, and I had a chance to go to Monaco to their top 500 entrepreneur event. And there are only, um, there's not many women on that stage, right? Mm -hmm. So you've, we, there's so much work to be done to get, to help women uh, get private equity, to get more investment and to launch their own companies. And then I think there's tremendous opportunity in the financial and insurance space to recruit powerhouse women. And in part, I was speaking, I don't know, three or four years ago, I gave a keynote at the Drecker Conference for Edward Jones, and they happened to have a great speaker there who was also talking about what happens when financial advisors, you know, too often they have great relationships with their male clients, but if the, that client passes away, do you have a great relationship with the female client, with the spouse? Mm -hmm. And and financial advising advisors are really starting to understand that there's been a tremendous transfer of wealth and that women are making a lot of decisions now about their financial advisors. And some of them are switching advisors later in life because they just never really developed the right relationships. So I think recruiting women is key. And then making sure that everyone is mindful that that women are controlling more wealth and they make sure that women are at the table. That's absolutely important. So I'm doing a lot of work helping the financial firms think about the language they're using to recruit mm -hmm. women. We do some AB testing. We did AB testing with a client who was trying to recruit a salesperson. And this was based on work I had done when I was recruiting a sales director. And when I called it a sales director, I got mostly male candidates when I was advertising for a client support director, I got mostly women candidates. So part of it is thinking about the language we're using. I, I know that there's a financial firm considering instead of talking about commissions, they're talking about rev share. I did that in my own company because I find that women say, yes, I want rev share, but commission just seems very old school and not as enticing. And I think we're also going to have to think about that for millennials too. So there's a lot that goes into the language, but of course, also just thinking about the environment. 
and and how you're doing your training mm-hmm. and how you're rewarding diverse candidates is critical. Yeah, commission versus rev share seems very much more eat what you kill hunter versus even though they're effectively going to be the same thing versus right. collaborative. I know. Let's share in the revenue. Yeah. Versus I'll pay you a commission on that deal. Yeah. Very different, right? For the sure. way we frame things matters a lot. I mean, part of the email training, we didn't get to talk about it today, and maybe we'll do a different one, is I talk about priming for the positive. And that just matters so much. So I have a whole section. I just did this last week for a group in Australia, a group of retailers in Australia, where we were just talking about how you start with what you can do versus what you can't. Mm -hmm. I work a lot, as I mentioned, in insurance, and they always want to say, we help you avoid disaster. And what does the client hear? Disaster. (laughs) So we have to think about, again, too, how are we framing what we're talking about? I was reading a book the other day where he was like, there's a big difference between a death tax and an estate tax, you know? Yeah, for sure. I'm scared of approaching death tax, and I'm less scared of approaching (laughs) estate tax. Right. Just quickly on priming for the positive, is that for the client, just what you're saying in terms of like bringing out, bringing out the good versus watch out for the bad. Yeah. Let me give you one quick example. This is for email, but it's my favorite one. If you do nothing else out of this podcast today, just go to your emails and ban the word, unfortunately. (laughs) So if you email Stephanie on my team and say, Hey, I'd like for Deborah to give a keynote. Is she available at 10 o'clock, you know, whatever date. Stephanie will not respond. Unfortunately, Deborah's busy that day. If I indeed am, she would say Deborah could make the next day work or Deborah could make noon work. I mean, you're going to start with what you can do, not with what you can't. And that seems simple. But again, once you start thinking about it more consciously, it's even small things. Like if you sent me a note and said, Deborah, when can you get that to me? If I said, Darcy, I can't get it to you until Friday versus hi, Darcy, I can't, I can get that over to you on Friday. You maybe didn't even expect it until you know, the following week. Right. So it's just a lot of times we're priming for what we can't do versus what we can. I love that. That's great. Get rid of, unfortunately. And regret. Someone said, I replaced it with regrettably. I'm like, no, no, that doesn't work either. <laughs> That's not the point here. <laughs> That's not the point. Yeah. So how in your business do you replicate yourself? I understand you're saying there's sure. modules, modules yes, and things like this, which, you know, definitely I'm sure go a long way, but... It yeah, sounds like sure. you're, the, you're a lot of the brains behind the operation. Well, to scale, we have great people. So as I mentioned, Pete, who's the award-winning Xbox game guy, he's incredible. I've learned so much from him. We do a ton of work together. And then Jean leads a lot of my SOS, our SOS work. So she's fantastic. She's formerly the head of curriculum design at a couple of banks. So she's just super smart. We have an implementation person who's phenomenal. So it's a team of really smart people. I think it's a team of, um, I always say, sometimes we used to, when we were in the hallways, when we had hallways, I would walk by and our team would be, you know, debating things like the Oxford comma. So I sort of think we're kind of a geeky group of of people, but who really love what we do. I, I tend to say we, we kind of feel like we're out to rid the world of bad corporate training, which is a, just a fun, that's fun. That is fun. Yeah. And it's kind of a fun thing to think about. My sister used to always tell me that, geeks finish first or geeks will rule the world or something she would tell me. I forget. I, I kind of blocked <laughs> that I quote, so but I was like, what are you talking about? And she, I think she's kind of right. I love that. So what do you think, you know, as we approach the end here, like, what do you think, how does what you do, obviously right now it's bang on, uh, whether it's presentations, emails, or, you know, digital presence, like you're nailing, nailing it across the board in five years. How do you see what you do changing? So, you know, that is such a great question. And and we started this a decade ago. And I remember I felt like it, I got a call actually right after, you know, the COVID crisis hit from a team in Alabama who said, I know you've been telling us about LinkedIn forever, and now we're actually going to do it. <laughs> and I, I just started laughing I because I'm from Southern Kentucky. We, you know, we were just joking around with each other on uh, just trying to get people to adopt. But what's funny about it is I a lot of the stuff I've been evangelizing about for a long time, people now go, okay, I have no choice. I've got I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to network virtually. 
And now I have no choice. I'm going to have to do these these virtual meetings. It's kind of stunning, isn't it? How fast we all adapted. I just, I just, ironically, this in February a year ago, I spoke at a Limer conference and I actually talked about Zoom. And I talked about how I thought that this video stuff was going to be big. And I I was not this prescient, right? <laughs> I had yeah. no idea this was happening. Yeah. But I you? looked back and thought, wow, I, I just gave a talk about Zoom two weeks ago. And we embraced it so much faster than anyone thought we could, which just tells you what you're what you're capable of when you really have to do it. I think where we're headed, though, is attention's going to get even more scarce. Mm-hmm. The technology, the learning curve for technology, we're going to have to adapt at an even faster rate. It's going to be harder to break through the noise. And so the skills that I'm teaching now around attention design, I don't see how they're ever going to get less valuable. We are in an, a, the New York Times had a great story today about the attention economy that we're in. And I think it's, it's it was spot on. We are absolutely in an attention economy. Yeah, and that will continue. Yes. And this is taking a page out of the uh, not priming for the positive, but um, yeah, it's almost, it's some ways un- unsettling to think about how, how you deal with, you know, I'm in the strike zone with, with a bunch of young kids, but how that affects young kids going forward too, right? Uh, you know, but You know what gives maybe. me hope though? I- See, perfect. You primed for the positive. I did not. I like this. Let's end yeah. on this. Well, here's what, and, and it really does, because when I taught graduate, classes I ended up feeling like wow here's what's here's what's different here's and I could write a whole chapter on this maybe I should should. people my age and I'm talking about people in their 50s or older we used to have an expectation of mastery you know you bought a phone and you figured out how to use it and it was probably going to be good for a long time and when I started teaching graduate courses one of my big ahas is oh they don't have an expectation of mastery they expect they're going to get on it. They'll figure out how to use it. And then it's going to be the next, then it's going to be the next thing. So they're not saying, oh, I totally have to master this. And I realized one of the ways that we got people to engage in LinkedIn more is we got them over that fear that, well, I'm not a master at it, so I don't want to do it. It's like, no, you can do baby steps. You know, you, we have a three, two, one, you're going to, this week, you're going to do three likes. You're going to do two comments and one post, just do that for the next month. And that just helps people start to say, oh, okay, this isn't nearly as tough as I thought it was. So I do think grad, or my young, my younger students, they just seem more willing to jump in and experiment in ways that those of us who wanted to look like we had mastered something, we just, you know, we all, a lot of us used to wait until we felt like we had it mastered. Yeah, that's a great, that's great. Like, and I think you're right with millennials and you know, that is personified in the tech industry where they talk about, you know, fail fast, fail often, learn, yeah. move forward, don't be exactly. scared to fail, which is it's brilliant. Yeah, I just like to frame that up around expectations of mastery because I I do think that is generational. Like those of us, because in the you did used to be able to master stuff <laughs> yeah. in ways that you just can't now. It just moves yeah. too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. But but overall, here's what I love about the new world. There's a lot of things I don't. And I don't mean this new world. I just mean more of the digital new world. I don't mean the pandemic-related world. Mm-hmm. But what I am excited about is I do think it's more informal. I've always said, plain, well, my dad's favorite phrase, so this probably tells you where I got my influence. My dad used to always say, plain words are easily understood. And I think that communicating with more simplicity focusing on others instead of how great you are, engaging, thinking about how you engage people with powerful storytelling. Those are all things that I've, I've been passionate about my whole life. And what makes me happy is they're not going away. No, it's So true. I grew up, my dad was this awesome storyteller and, you know, I grew up in the South and people would come from miles around to hear him tell stories and that stuff still matters. A lot of the core content that those of us have been in business for a long time, relationship building, you know, good stories, recommending each other, building true, authentic client relationships where you genuinely care about them. That stuff I think is going to matter more. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I can't stop thinking about plain words are easily understood. I might use that as a title. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it stayed with me. My dad, my dad was so much fun. He was definitely one of those Southern storytellers and he had these phrases that always stayed with you. What's another one? I love the Southern... Man, my my wife's 
grandfather. Every time I see him, he's he's just great. Like he's just such a great guy. I, I take notes in my cell phone every time I'm down there because he says <laughs> something. I'm like, oh, I can't forget that. I have to tell my buddies back home. Oh, that's you know? awesome. Like, okay, I'll tell you one. Yeah. This is super funny, but it always stayed with me. And uh, when I was in high school, I brought you know, one of my first dates home, I was going to a dance and, and this guy, he was a little, he thought, he kind of thought he was all that. And so I came, you know, I came back in, I'm like, so dad, what'd you think? And he said, ah, if you could buy him for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth, you'd make a killing. (laughs) (laughs) And that has always stayed with me when you meet someone who's kind of arrogant or, you know. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You think of your dad. Yeah. I think of my dad. That's so good. Just a, he was super funny. Well, on that, I love, I love that as ending on a high, it was all a high. So, you know, we ended, we were on the top of the mountain range the whole time during the conversation, but to end on a, on a positive, that's a great one. Great stories. And I won't ask if there's any questions. So (laughs) it's been an absolute pleasure. I think you're just great. I think you, you know, you're right on it, like I've said, but also, you know, have helped a lot of people and, you know, if there's a, any Actually, why don't you quickly tell people where they can find you, name your company, and, sure. and if, if, if there's interest. And Darcy, I so appreciate you having me on the podcast. It's a really fun conversation, and it's fun to talk with people who get really excited about the work that they're doing. And, and we all need you know, work we're passionate about, especially right now. So uh, it's a, uh, this is a, it's a great time to have focus for sure. Yeah. And if anybody is interested in any of this work or LinkedIn makeovers or you, your presentation is terrible and you don't know what to do about it or any of that, you can either link into me, <laughs> Deborah Jasper, D-E-B-R-A-J-A-S-P-E-R, or you can email me at jasper at mindsetdigital.com. Uh, and it doesn't have to be short, organized, or skimmable. <laughs> and um, or you can, of course, go to mindsetdigital.com and reach us that way. But I definitely appreciate being on, and I I uh, I love working with passionate entrepreneurs and passionate people in business. So I will keep you posted on whether I hear from folks. Yeah, that'd be great. And listen, the pleasure's mine and ours. And thanks so much. And good luck with everything. Yeah, thanks. Take care. Your time is valuable. So thanks for joining us for this episode of Venture and Gains, where we connect great people, ideas, and opportunities. It's this idea of net weaving versus networking. Stay healthy. Darcy McConvey is a director of private capital markets at Graybrook Realty Partners and is registered under Graybrook Securities, Inc. The opinions and statements expressed by Darcy and the Venture and Gains guests are their own and they do not reflect the opinions of Greybrook Realty Partners or Greybrook Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.